Thank you, Ed. Um, well, we're going to be in 1 Kings 10. So if you have one of the church Bibles and you can turn up to page 349, uh, that would be a help to me and I think to you. And uh, as you do that, <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us. Help us, Father, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to hear the challenge and comfort of your word, to take refuge in your Son, and to live in the life-changing power of your Spirit. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Uh, we recently received a message on Telegram from some missionary friends of ours who live and work in Central Asia. They live in one of the stands, you know, the kind of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, that, that kind of vast landlocked belt of countries east of the Caspian Sea. A sort of ancient conduit of the movement of peoples and goods along the Silk Road. Countries more recently occupied by the Russians until the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the message from our friends included a video, a drone video, of the remote and spectacular region that they call the Valley of the Trees. It's a place where they are seeking to share the message of Jesus with people who have never even heard of his name. It's amazing to think that the images of these unreached lands can be transferred instantly to the other side of the world. Images of Central Asia within seconds over our breakfast table in Sheffield. It was the uh, Canadian media theorist Marshall McLuhan who coined the phrase global village. The kind of technological shrinking of our world that brings nations to our doorstep. Of course, there's always been the movement of peoples across the world. The sort of heartbreaking devastation of, of war and disaster and, and droughts, people fleeing their countries with barely the clothes on their backs. But technology has brought the nations together in ways that would have been unimaginable even to our grandparents. You know, different foods, different clothes, music, a smorgasbord of difference that should remind us that every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights who doesn't change. But if there is a cultural richness amongst the nations, there are also cultural challenges. And a, a largely secular, liberal West doesn't know quite what to do with our often deeply religious and often socially conservative neighbors. As one person put it, we want their takeaways, but we don't want their values. And so there are hard questions for our embattled leaders to face, questions prompted by difference, different values, beliefs, convictions, questions of truth and goodness and beauty, problems posed by suffering and sorrow and death. And hard questions are what is on the table in 1 Kings 10, an international summit between the Queen of Sheba and the King of Israel. I think doubtless there would have been some sort of trade discussions maybe, perhaps talks about military alliance. But amidst all the discussions of state, there were also what 1 Kings describes as hard questions. Verse 1, 
when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Now, the truth is, our leaders are not exempt from the hard questions of life. And whilst the pressures of statecraft will always tend to address the urgent rather than the important, the important questions don't go away. Even the powerful can be humbled and unsettled by the hard questions of life. As Pascal put it once, leave a king entirely alone, with nothing to satisfy his senses, no care to occupy his mind, with no one to keep him company and no diversion, with complete leisure to think about himself. And you will see that a king without diversion is a very wretched man. Everyone. Leaders no less than led, everyone must face the hard questions of life. Questions of truth, goodness, justice, problems posed by the suffering of the world, sorrow and death. Of course, in every age, leadership is a mixed bag. There are some notable. There are many that are notorious. I suspect that is as true in Ireland as it is in England. It was certainly true within the nation of Israel. From the period of the judges to the decline of the monarchy, Israel's leadership would have made even the former English Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, look impressive. But one man stood out, verse 1. Solomon and his relationship with the Lord. Now, the Queen of Sheba, it seems, had heard of Solomon's fame, verse 1, but you suspect she thought that the whole unmatched wisdom and wealth thing, she, she seems to think it was just too good to be true. Even the famous can be fraudulent, peddlers of snake oil all the more contemptible when laced with a bit of religion. Now look down to verse 7, it certainly suggests that she was at least sceptical, if not cynical. I did not believe these things. I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. In the end, it seems that curiosity overcame skepticism, and this, this successful, inquiring, thoughtful leader made the long journey from the south to ply this famous ruler with her questions, verse 2. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. See, Solomon was the real thing. She was, the end of verse 5, she was overwhelmed, or, or more literally, she was breathless. Or to use a modern idiom, it, it was like the Queen of Sheba was completely blown away by his wisdom and wealth. It's hard not to feel that we live in an age that is sated with information, but starved of understanding. 24-7 news the endless scrolling through social media feeds, the constant parade of so-called experts, and yet none of it seems to bring us much closer to wisdom, does it? 
the American English poet T.S. Eliot put it, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. And yet 1 Kings 10 seems to suggest that there is such a thing as wisdom. Wisdom that that can genuinely deal with the hardest questions of life. Wisdom that can bring the answers that we, we need and crave. And that wisdom is bound up with one man and his relation with the Lord. Verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the famous Solomon and his relation to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. And her conclusion, verse 7, in wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. So what exactly is biblical wisdom? It's it's not mere information or, or knowledge or cleverness. One of the first consultants I worked for was a remarkable man, not least because he had far more letters after his name than in his name. We're not just talking a few, it was like a whole paragraph, and he took great pride in the fact that none of them were honorary, all of them were earned. But you can have more letters after your name than in your name, and you can still be a fool, according to the Bible. Or you can make a little boy in our church family at home whose parents were told that he would never walk or talk, still less pass any exams. You can be like him and still share the wisdom of Solomon. The wise can be fools, and fools can be wise. How so? Because biblical wisdom means seeing the whole of reality as it truly is. Under the rule of the divine king who made and sustains all that is seen and unseen. As the Bible puts it elsewhere, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To reconcile, to recognize that God is is truly there, that That we, if you like, are a product of his imagination rather than him being a product of ours. To acknowledge that all we have is within his gift. Our relationships, our achievements, our every breath. To trust him in life and in death. That is what it means to be wise. I know as a congregation you have strong links with Christian Unions Ireland and I... The movement's part of the kind of wider movement, IFES, which works with international students all over the world. And a number of years ago, they ran a kind of poster picture of a number of students on the front, and it had this caption. They may be clever, but only one person can make them wise. They may be clever, but only one person can make them wise, because wisdom is, in the first place, a gift. Just keep a finger in 1 Kings 10 and just flick back a few pages to chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon, this son of David, king over a great nation, could have had anything that he wanted, 
but wants are rarely the same as needs. And he recognized that his greatest need was for wisdom. And so 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. See, God gave, indeed God gives what the world cannot give. An ability to see the whole of reality as it really is, a world that is under the rule of the divine king who made and sustains everything that is seen and unseen. Now, of course, biblical wisdom is both gift and task. God alone gives wisdom, and yet wisdom needs to be exercised. It needs to be lived out. The whole of reality needs to be explored and enjoyed insofar as we are able, explored and enjoyed in thankfulness and praise. So as you read on in 1 Kings 4, you discover that Solomon's wisdom shaped his engagement with everything. With the arts, verse 32. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. And with the sciences, plant life, verse 33, animals, birds, fish. As C.S. Lewis put it once, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so, verse 34 of 1 Kings 4, from all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And of course, that's exactly what you see filled out in 1 Kings 10. So just flick back to that chapter, which is where we're going to stay in for the rest of our time. All nations, all kings. And you see that in 1 Kings 10. The arrival of the Queen of Sheba, verse 1. The ships of Hiram, verse 11. The greatness of God's king drawing the nations of the world. Interestingly, it's not just Solomon's wisdom that draws the nations. It's also his wealth. Solomon is unimaginably wealthy. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard, verse 7. And lest there be any doubt about the reality of Solomon's wealth, the second half of 1 Kings 10, which we didn't read, the second half gives a virtual tour of the royal treasury, a summary of the royal tax returns, gold, revenue, real estate that would match easily Musk, Bezos, Gates, and if all the talk in 1 Kings 10 about wealth leaves you a little bit uncomfortable, you don't actually have to be a fully paid up socialist to feel that this staggering concentration of wealth in the bank account of one individual is, if not unjust, then perhaps a little bit unseemly. But biblically, all wealth is a divine blessing. You know, whether we have lots or we have little, every cent of it is a gift. As Paul puts it in the New Testament, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
And, and whatever we have received, we, we're to hold on to it lightly and to give from it generously. It's the fool who trusts in his wealth and boasts in his riches. And it is the wise man who trusts in the Lord and gives generously. As Solomon's father, David, put it, everything comes from you. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And so 1 Kings 10 is not embarrassed about Solomon's wealth. It is the wisdom and wealth of God's king that draws the nations. Verse 23, thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. We are so used to the compromise and corruption of our own leaders that we doubtless share the skepticism of the Queen of Sheba. She'd heard of Solomon's fame, but she she thought, verse 7, that it was just too good to be true. And then she discovered here was the real thing. A remarkable ruler whose wisdom was unrivaled, whose wealth was unsurpassed, and whose leadership brought happiness and blessing to his people. And yet the wisdom and wealth and generosity of God's king was never only for the nation of Israel. Always God had promised to bless the world. And so the nations that come to this divinely anointed king find blessing that they could scarcely imagine. Verse 13, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. To which I immediately think of the echoes in the New Testament of a God who gives us immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. You know, in many ways, this is the high point in the Old Testament. It's the high point in Israel's history. Solomon is the promised son of David who was wise and wealthy and generous in whose service was perfect freedom. And yet, And yet you don't have to read very much further in 1 Kings to find things unraveling. Now way back in Deuteronomy there was a warning for Israel's future kings. The perennial temptations of power and sex and money. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses. He must not take many wives. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And so even in this remarkable chapter a shadow falls. The accumulation of horses, verse 26. Of wealth, verse 27. Of wives, the beginning of chapter 11. From dizzying height to desperate lows, this remarkable leader would fall. And yet. All of this was but a foretaste. For God's promises for the world still stood. The promise of a greater son of David who would also be a son of God, wisdom embodied in the flesh and blood of the divine King Jesus. The one who was unimaginably rich and yet for our sakes became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become 
rich. See, read the Gospels and what do you see? Right from the very beginning. You see people coming to this king. Now, some, like the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, some heard of Jesus and were skeptical that it was all too good to be true. And to those whose skepticism turned to cynicism and unbelief, Jesus issued a warning in our second reading in Matthew 12. The Queen of the South, the Queen of the Sheba, she will rise in judgment against this generation and condemn it. Condemn it for its cynicism and unbelief. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, something greater than Solomon is here. Yeah, that warning, it's an encouragement, isn't it? It's encouragement that the greatness of God's greater king has drawn and will continue to draw the nations. See, again, read the Gospels and, and what do you see right from the beginning? The wise men who came from the east at the birth of Jesus? Now, the Samaritan woman? The Roman centurion? And what, what begins as a trickle in the Gospels becomes a torrent in the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the nations drawn to the greatness of God's greater king through the testimony of his people. Well, so what for you and me? Let me make two suggestions. Number one, we need to see again the greatness of God's king. You know, we are very easily wearied and jaded with life. And if we're honest, sometimes with church. Now, the sleep-robbing pressures of work. The relentless demands of young children. The worry. Strained marriages. Poor health. And if church is supposed to be an encouragement amidst all that, why does it sometimes feel like an endless list of meetings and problems and frustrations? Sometimes it feels that there are more questions than answers. And you can catch yourself wondering, is Jesus too good to be true? And then you read 1 Kings 10. And it is a reminder of the breathtaking greatness of God's king whose unrivaled wisdom and unmatched wealth drew the nations of the ancient world and now. One greater than Solomon is here. Now read the Gospels again and see with your own eyes, Jesus was always captivating. People were spellbound by his teaching, broken by his judgments, overwhelmed by his kindness. People came to him with all their hard questions, questions posed by sin and suffering and sorrow. People came to him with all their hard questions and he answered them. People came hopeless in their poverty, both the wealthy and the poor. People came hopeless in their poverty and out of his royal bounty he made them rich. Verse 7, I did not believe these things. 
I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I have heard. A number of years ago, I took a funeral of some good friends, both of whom are consultants, whose son, young son, 22, died in very, very difficult circumstances. And the church was absolutely packed for the funeral, full of consultants and senior academics, full of people who are wise in the world's eyes. But I tell you what was impressive on the day that they buried Jamie. What was impressive was when his mother and father took the hands of Jamie's university friends and led them to the graveside of their son because their confidence in the face of life's hard questions was in the wisdom of God's king. So what for us? We need to see again the greatness of God's king and secondly, we need to be thankful will continue to draw the nations of the world. Now Jesus said he came in the first place for the lost sheep of Israel and yet God's promise had always been for the nations of the world. Now wonderfully within your own church family you have people as we've already seen this morning, believers from all over the world. From Brazil and Ukraine, from Romania, South Africa, Kenya, Egypt, Japan, the greatness of God's king has drawn and will continue to draw the nations of the world. A number of years ago, I had a trip out to Siberia, of all places. I was in western Siberia. I was speaking at a student conference there. We had students who made a three-day journey from eastern Siberia, a place called Yakutsk where most of the year it's around minus 30, minus 40 degrees. There's a vibrant and living church in Yakutsk. From the ends of the earth, the nations drawn to God's greater king. I remember just before um, the world went mad and everything got closed down, I was out visiting our friends in Central Asia. And in one of the stands where we were staying, I met this chap who was a Yorkshireman from Sheffield who grew up just round the corner from where we now live. This man, with his family, lives in Central Asia, has learnt Russian and the language in the country in which he's living, and their family are seeking to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. See, on this, your world mission Sunday, the temptation is to think immediately about what we should do. So a classic mission Sunday focus is pray and give and go. And those are not without considerable merit in terms of thinking what's next. But you know, the focus of 1 Kings 10 and the focus of much of the Bible, the focus of 1 Kings 10 is less on what we should do and far more on what God has done. And if you're going to consider praying and giving and going, going to the nations on your doorstep in Dublin or to the nations at the end of the world, if you're going to try and do any of that, you need first to see again this, the greatness 
the greatness of God's king who has drawn and who will continue to draw the nations of the world. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Almighty God, we thank you for your great plan to bring blessing to your world. We thank you for the greatness of your King, Jesus whose wisdom and wealth is unsurpassed. Thank you, out of his royal bounty, you can make people of every nation wise and rich. And so we say, to you who sit on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever.